everyone. My name is Jessica. And I am Caitlin. And this is the Calling All Spirits podcast. So how are you today, Caitlin? I'm doing pretty well, actually. I, uh, I had work called off yesterday and today because of the ice all over Texas. So um, yesterday I did very little productive, but today was a heavy duty house cleaning day because I have not been doing that. <laughs> I actually really love those days when you actually can get stuff accomplished you've been like putting off. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, very good. Very good. Great what about you? The How have you been? It, we were good. We were good. Um, We stayed. Well, my son's school got canceled because of the ice, which ended up not being that bad here, which was a good thing. But um, since his school was canceled, I worked from home today, which is always nice. So I had to work, but it's nice when you can do it like in your PJs and you don't have to get dressed. And Oh, for sure. I love my remote days specifically for that. <laughs> not only do I not have to wake up at five in the morning, but then I can just stay comfy and, and cozy and relaxed while I handle the bizarreness of life. But I only get to do that <laughs> one day a week, so... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I feel like I can be more productive sometimes when I'm just like at home and in my space. And um, you don't have the interruptions either, which is like really nice. Exactly. Like I like my bigger computer monitor in the office, but man, do I get a lot done when I am working remotely just because I don't, again, you don't have people walking in. I don't have people coming into my office to get to the, to the records because I have the records in, my, room, in my, my little office by myself. I am grateful that I'm by myself in that little office, though, because it has made COVID far less stressful than it would have been otherwise. Oh, no, I bet. I bet. And I would love to be the keeper of the records. Like, any historian, it's like, you have them all there. That's awesome. <laughs> well, very cool. Well, what a great day, then, to record the podcast. We're both relaxed and I'm ready to go and I'm excited to dive in like I'm excited about this one but like our favorite family we're just like one step closer to them too so true although I don't know when we're gonna get to my favorite person because she's a little <laughs> further down the line but the other favorite is definitely coming closer yes no we are going to get to all of them so many podcasts in the future but do you want to dive on in and what we're talking about today? Sure. Um, today we'll be starting with a little bit of general history about the setting of the spiritualism movement in the U.S. And then I've got a key player in the kickstarting of said movement. So I guess since you've got the general history, why don't you take it away? Awesome. Happy to do it. So it's kind of, a, I, when I was putting this together, I thought of it almost like a play, like the setting, like we're going to set the stage. And we're going to start with what they called, I've heard it said the burnt over district. I've also, some people say the burned over district, same meaning. But what was it? So just a, an initial explanation is the burnt over district refers to Western and central regions of New York in the early 19th century that saw revivals and the formation of new religious movements during the Second Great Awakening. But so that's that's the basic definition. But we're going to take it a step back and we're going to go a little more to the beginning. So first of all, what was the Second Great Awakening? 
So the Second Great Awakening was a Protestant religious revival in the United States during the 19th century from roughly about 1795 to 1835. And during this um, Great Awakening, there was evangelical religious fervor that just swept across the country, but especially the Northeast and Midwest. And it had new ideas and beliefs that were just spreading and taking fire. It was kind of like a fire that was just sweeping across the country. You're kind of going to start seeing where the name is going to come from. Now, as the name suggests, this was not the first one because this is technically the second Great Awakening. I don't know if the first one just didn't. (laughs) There were still people sleeping, probably because some of these people weren't alive, but thus... (laughs) It's just funny. It's like they had this huge first great awakening and it's like, that wasn't good enough. We're going to do a second one. We had to have the second one to wake everybody else up. (laughs) That's kind of what I thought of. The first one wasn't effective. We got to do this again. Um, So just in case you're wondering, what was that first one? Well, the first great awakening, it's usually referred to simply as The Great Awakening, which was a period when spirituality and religious devotion were revived. Um, It swept through the American colonies prior to the revolution. So this one took place from the 1730s to the 1770s. So it ended in the 1770s. The second one starts 1795. So not a huge gap between the Great Awakenings. It's like they took off time for the American Revolution and then they jumped right back in. They had a lunch break and then went back to work. (laughs) Exactly. The first one was centered mostly in New England. um, And it was very similar to the Second Great Awakening. It's this series of revivals. And um, many colonists uh, found new meaning in the religions of the day or were converted to the religions of the day. So that's what we're, that's kind of what's going on in the country. That people are being awakened. So where is this mainly taking place? Now, um, and when is this taking place? So um, we're going to look at really the third phase because the second great awakening actually can be broken up into three phases. But the part we're really interested in took place from 1825 to 1835. And the third phase commenced with the activities of even evangelist. I always have trouble with that word. Evangelist Charles Gredison Finney, who began his revivalism in small towns in Western New York, which is where we set our scene. So, During the 19th century, this area of New York was growing and new communities were just emerging across uh, the entire area. A lot of this growth was due in part to the creation of the Erie Canal that was built between 1817 and 1825. And with the new canal, I mean, it brought in people and ideas to the region, um, especially young farmers and their families because there was a lot of opportunity but there was also a lot of cheap land which reminds me of another place during this time that was also attracting a lot of families and people because it had a lot of cheap land Gee, <laughs> what area of the country could you be talking about oh could it be where i am right now in texas <laughs> I mean, given where specifically in Texas you are, that's really accurate. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Right on the Brazos. 
We are. We are right on the Brazos River. And that's really interesting to me. So what's going on in Texas with people moving here? It's also happening up in New York with the Erie Canal. And among those families was a very special one that is going to be enticed to move to this area that we're going to talk about in the next podcast. So stay tuned to find out who they are. Now, what, how does this all come together? So while the Great Awakening was widespread across America, no other place was really impacted as greatly as this area of New York. It was here that fervent religious revivals and reforms swept through the area, making it really, I think of it as like the epicenter of this movement. This is where it was concentrated. So they were holding revivals. They were holding camp meetings, camp meetings in many of the small towns and the large cities. So what is a camp meeting? Well, it's really just an outdoor revival that was held on the American frontier, and it was usually Protestant denomination. So it's just a revival outside. It's basically the only difference. Outside church. Outside church. Yes, they called them (laughs) camp meetings. (laughs) Exactly. I love this. The primary focus was, quotation marks, soul winning. So they're trying to win people's souls. That's their primary focus. And which is just an effort to convert non-believers to return to God so they can seek reach salvation. Yeah, but and, when you make it into a competition sounding thing like that, it's a little bit less idealistic where I'm simply here to draw more people to God versus I'm winning more souls than you are. <laughs> which yeah. is the sentence I think of. Yeah, that term is a little interesting. I And I didn't find that in all the research I did, but I did find that in one source of soul winning, which I'm like, I'm going to note that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's kind of um, ego based in that case. <laughs> just a little. And as you can imagine, during these camp meetings, followers would spend several days hearing the word of God from various religious leaders. Not surprising that church attendance increased significantly during this time period. Wow. (laughs) Makes sense. And it was particularly Baptist and Methodist churches really gained large numbers of converts during the Second Great Awakening. Now, they weren't the only religions that popped up during this time, because not only do you have the established Protestant religions, you can also have new religions that are coming into being. One of the ones that started during this time was Mormonism, which was founded by Joseph Smith. This came out of the Burned Over region and the beginnings of dun 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 spiritualism, which I know you're going to talk a little more about in a moment. Yup. It's literally <laughs> the subject of this podcast, or at least the beginning part of it. At least the beginning part of it. Just a little. It's kind of important. So, I mean, this area is just ripe for all kinds of new religions. Now, in addition to spiritualism and new religious movements, you also have a lot of moral movements start emerging during this time that are just going to grow as the 19th century progresses. So you have several moral and philanthropic reforms, including the beginning of the women's rights movement, which is, woohoo, that's exciting. Oh, yeah. They're Give us getting all their- the abilities that we should be able to have out in society. Exactly, exactly. And I know we're not going to cover this today, but 
it's spiritual spiritualism plays a really big role in the women's rights movements it's a fascinating history and they worked really well together they they did it, it it's it's why i have my favorite person in this entire subject because she was heavily involved in the women's rights movement and also a spiritualist from the jump so yeah, no, it's it's a big part of my views on everything, but it's also a huge part of the movement in general, which I really love pointing out to people who are interested in the women's rights movement and then having them respond with, no, that's just silly. Is it though? Because, like, they were a huge part of it. Like, come on. Yeah, I, I think, I, I would even guess that most modern day historians don't know the role that spiritualism played in women's rights and especially gaining the right to vote and so much. I think it's one of those, the part of history that's kind of been just ignored or just not acknowledged at all. So you know what? We're going to acknowledge it. That that will probably be a two or three parter. Oh, easily. (laughs) That's going to be part of a series. We'll cover like four bios and some general topics. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that history needs to be out there and credit needs to be given where it is deserved and it's not. But I'm going to step down off my soapbox. We're going to get back because that's still a couple of years away. You can't get on the soapbox Uh, until we finish setting the stage. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But the other big movement that emerged during this time was temperance and the movement towards the prohibition of alcohol. So many believed alcohol was promoting crime along the canal, and the movement found crossover support among abolitionists and also the women's rights groups. They jumped on board with Prohibition as well, and the movement to outlaw alcohol. Everybody wanted social change. They did. They did. So when we think of it, I mean, that's something to note, that not only do you have all this religious change coming forward, but... You have all the social changes that are coming along with it. And it's in it's all popping up in this one area of the United States, which is really amazing. So we've kind of hinted at it, but just to finish it out, what's in a name? So with so much activity in the area and the waves of religious passion sweeping the area, it earned the name the Burnt Over District. So it was actually Charles Finney, so one of the most influential leaders of this time, religious leaders of the time, who first referred to this region of New York as a Burnt District in his 1876 biography. So in his biography, he explained that the area had been so heavily evangelized as to have no fuel, aka the unconverted, left over to burn, convert. So there were no more people to convert. It was completely just burned over by the time it was all said and done. Now, in conclusion, and I really love this quote from author John uh, John H. Martin. I think he does a beautiful job just really explaining what happened in this area. So I mean, this is his quote from his book. Few areas of the United States have seen the flowering of as many diverse enthusiasms and social and moral reforms as blossomed along the Erie Canal in New York in the 19th century. Experiments of all kinds of a religious and social nature found a haven in these new lands. And that sums it up. That's Mm. what was going on. So 
I'm going to turn it over to you, Miss Caitlin, because why do we need to know all that? Who popped up in this area? That- well, I mean, there are quite a few people who are about to become up and active, <laughs> but one gentleman born in 1826 made a massive impact that then reverberated through everybody else's. So, better known as the Poughkeepsie Seer, Andrew Jackson Davis was born on August 11th, 1826, just across from Poughkeepsie in Orange County. In his autobiography, The Magic Staff, which has a bad joke that I'm not going to make, he remembered... (laughs) Sorry. He remembered, probably more than anyone could possibly remember of their childhood, growing up in a fairly poor household with an alcoholic father and a religious mother who may or may not have been clairvoyant. Um, The theory is that she may have just not been able to tell the difference between fact and fantasy. Uh, The family moved around a lot, but when he was still pretty young, they ended up in the Poughkeepsie area. And in the chapter of his autobiography that he titled, I Yield to the Mystic Power, he wrote his thoughts about when he first discovered his gift. Uh, His quote is, I have a body, a tangible body. I reside in the form, but is it my natural or my spiritual body? Is it adapted to the outdoor world or the post-mortem life? And then he goes on to talk about how he feels like he's not really alive and not really dead. And that made me think about there's a condition. I had to Google what it was called because I could not remember for the life of me. But it's where you believe that your body is not alive anymore or you don't believe you really exist outside of like your consciousness. And... It's called the Cotard Delusion, so C-O-T-A-R-D. And according to Healthline.com, because they were the best source I could find, um, it's a rare condition marked by the false belief that you or your body parts are dead, dying, or don't exist. It usually occurs with severe depression and some psychotic disorders, and it can accompany other mental illnesses and neurological conditions. You'll often hear it referred to as walking corpse syndrome, which is what I had heard mentioned before in my life somewhere. I can't remember where I heard about it. But wow. it's also called the Cotard syndrome, of course, or nihilistic delusion. It's I've um, never heard. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. No, no, I'm just you're, no. I want I want you to keep going because I've never heard of this. This is fascinating to me. I'm sorry. Continue. Oh no, yeah. Um, in a 2011 review of existing research about Cotard delusions, notes that 89 percent of documented cases include a depression de- include depression as a symptom, or have other symptoms like anxiety, hallucinations, hypochondria, guilt, and a preoccupation with hurting yourself or with death. Now, preoccupation with death, that sounds oddly fitting with what he does with his life. It is. And you said he felt like he was not quite, like part of him was dead? Like he, he Basically, it was a really long quote that I probably could have included uh, in its entirety. It He goes into, basically, he starts kind of not quite spiraling about what qualifies as existence, like, am I alive? Am I dead? Okay. Is like, is my spirit all there is? Just when he was talking about, like, he 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 doesn't quite sure if he's alive or not. It reminded me of walking corpse syndrome, and I found wow. the actual name for it, which is Cotard syndrome. That's and I mean, we still don't know what causes the delusion, but there are several possible risk factors. The average age of it happening is actually in your 50s but it can occur in children and teenagers apparently people who are under the age of five with this tend to have a bipolar depression which i'm pretty sure is manic depressive disorder i don't know why they didn't update the wording here 
but no, and and I am by no means a psychologist or a psychiatrist, y'all. I'm, I I promise I am not <laughs> speaking from an expertise. I am speaking from a hey, that sounds familiar. Let me get some details on it kind of position. Yeah. Just because there's there are so many people that when they t- when you talk about spiritualism or mediumship, they start trying to diagnose you with different disorders, and so it I'm doing it to him, which I kind of feel <laughs> a little bit bad about now that I think about it. Well, anyway. you're not diagnosing him. You're just. You're, you're, I don't think you're diagnosing him, but just him having those feelings, it's interesting that, you know, that could be one possibility, but you're not, but we're not saying it is, but that's interesting that there is something out there. Well, I mean, the other Similar. thing is that I, I, I didn't include this in my notes, but a comorbidity of Cotard syndrome is schizophrenia, which is mm. hearing voices, which is what he did. And that gets into a whole messy area of our people just clinically not okay in the head or are they actually capable of these great things and i for the most part lean towards the latter but it's it's one of those where when things fit so closely from my very limited understanding that i can't help but have to mention it (laughs) well gosh yeah and that could take us down a whole nother rabbit hole of people that were mediums or you did hear things that weren't there that were real they weren't always believed and it led to bad things. So, I mean, yeah. that's why we have so many exorcisms in the church's oh. history, too. Because, yuck. Yep. Um, okay. Anyway, back on topic. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I said, that he was, you know, he was born in 1826. So, by the 1840s, he's in his late teens, early 20s. And in 1843, Dr. J.S. Grimes, a professor of jurisprudence in the Castleton Medical College, visited the city he was living in and delivered a series of lectures on mesmerism. Now, what a law professor was doing delivering lectures on mesmerism, I have no idea. But he was he was there, and Davis not only attended, he was actually one of the subjects. He ended up being volunteered because he was sitting there, and because there was a bunch of younger boys in a room being droned at because they were really excited to be there <laughs> until they realized it was just a lecture. And so he kind of started dozing off, so oh, no. the doctor was like, ooh, we have a subject. And <laughs> and it, it didn't work. Um <laughs> Oh no. So he wasn't very good at Mesmer's techniques. <laughs> no, he was he was not good at in, in, in inducing people into the mesmeric state at all. Oh, or at no. least he wasn't good at doing it to Davis. Okay. I assume that since he did this lecture circuit a little bit, I, I imagine he was successful occasionally, but <laughs> I don't know. However, later there was a local tailor, William Livingston, who also tried to magnetize Davis and he threw Davis into what they called a magnetic sleep. And they discovered that when he was in the state, the human body became transparent to Davis and it made him possible to give accurate diagnoses of diseases. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? That is very cool. And then when Davis realized that he could magnetize or hypnotize people himself, he began performing healings on people and even opened a medical clinic with the partner named William Levingston, which pretty sure is the same person that put him into the trance to begin with. Not sure why this article had them split as two different people. (laughs) so a year later in 1844 he kind of spontaneously went into a trance and he wandered away from the house he came out of his trance the next morning having walked 40 miles away into the catskill mountains so he he made quite a distance i'm pretty sure it basically worked out that he basically went into his trance started walking and just kept walking until he woke up out of the trance oh my gosh i can i can see somebody walking overnight maybe 40 miles i don't know 
I have. That seems like a very long way. It is. And into the mountains. Didn't you say the Catskills? Yeah, the Catskills. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, while he was in his trance, he came across and, and conversed with two men. One was Galen, the Greek philosopher from the century, second century CE. And the second one was Emanuel Swedenborg, the 18th century Swedish scientist, theologian, and mystic Jessica told us about last week. That's <laughs> say, we know him. Yeah. I mean, we said he was influential, right? Yes, we did. <laughs> it's Davis's fault that Swedenborg was so influential to the spiritualist movement. <laughs> and according to what Swedenborg told Davis when he was in this trance, all human experience was only a reflection of a larger spiritual one. The soul was what gave meaning and expression to the concrete world. And as there is a spirit in every man and in respect to his life, a man is a spirit. The body is merely to enable a man to live on the earth. In fact, the body does not live or think at all. I guess kind of like a robot with your consciousness yeah. as the... Isn't that a Bruce Willis movie? Wait, what? <laughs> what is that a Bruce Willis movie? Where is our spirit guide? I know Bree's seen it. Um, where it's the thing where you can transfer your consciousness into uh, an android, basically, and you live as that in the outdoor world, but you're you yourself are still at home. You, I, you may be right. I, you oh, know man. me. I am I not good at up. the movie references. <laughs> I, I apologize. You may be exactly right, but that's really fascinating, and it's that's not far off from teaching surrogates. That- that's what it was called, surrogates. <laughs> Humans live in isolation and interact through surrogate robots. I wasn't. I was right. Yay. So, yeah, that's what it reminds me of, though. Like, you know, the body is just there to get you through life, but it doesn't really do anything itself. It's all through you and your using of the body. So. I I mean, that makes sense. I feel like we still teach that today, that the body is just the shell and it's the soul inside of it and the spirit. I I can understand that. I can get behind that. It's the vehicle that we we experience life through but it itself mm-hmm. isn't experiencing life and it was basically from this trance that davis developed his entire philosophy so from november 1845 to january 1847 he delivered 157 lectures in new york city often in the same rented rooms that he was running a medical practice out of so he oh, wow. basically continued his you know magnetic healings and his mm-hmm. medical diagnoses while he was also running his lectures and while he was lecturing he had a scribe the reverend william fishborough and his magnetizer or mesmerist dr lyon write down his trances as dictation and it was because of them that the principles of nature her divine revelations and a voice to mankind was even possible so that was the title of the book that he put out not quite as long as some other pamphlets we'll hear the titles of as we go through this history but oh it's slightly longish so the process of dictation lasted for 15 months Both of the men taking dictation insisted that except for grammatical corrections, they did no editing. It was a verbatim writing down of what he said in his trances. Wow. I can kind of see why this book took so long. It touched on everything from the origin of the universe. Apparently one boundless, undefinable and unimaginable liquid ocean of liquid fire. All the way through to the habits of an extremely tyrannical seal lice species found on Jupiter. (laughs) Wait, we got. We have to take a moment. <laughs> we have to take a so moment. So you remember when Jess was telling us about the interplanetary philosophies that Swedenborg had? Uh, apparently, one of these that either he didn't talk about in his original books and saved for Davis, or 
Davis somehow found out about. Um, there are a seal-like species that basically runs Jupiter, and they are supposedly extremely tyrannical. <laughs> so I don't know about you, but I'm seeing World War Two uniforms on seals barking at each other very angrily on Jupiter. <laughs> I'm sorry, but seals. I mean, who knows? Maybe one day. I mean, we're going to go to Mars. We may get to Jupiter. They may be, you know, he may be laughing to be like, ha ha ha, I was right. But I mean, seals and tyrannical seals. I mean, if you've ever seen them torturing and picking on penguins, I can see them being tyrants. <laughs> so are there just poor little penguins out there, like doing their bidding? <laughs> I just, I, 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 you know what? I'm actually a big admirer of Andrew Jackson Davis. I give him a lot of credit, but this is one part I just cannot. I can't get behind the tyrant seals. <laughs> I'm with you now when they're little uniforms, like ordering these poor little seals around. Barking, backhanding each other with their flippers. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, remind me, which planet is this on? Jupiter. Jupiter. <laughs> so if there's any um astronomers listening <laughs> are people really into space well i mean it's one of the gas giants we have no idea what goes on the surface we can't see that far what if we finally get the technology to get to jupiter and we're like we're here and we just see little seals marching around <laughs> what if that's after all that effort that's what's there just some seals and the poor little penguins I mean, you you never know. It's true. Do they live in houses? Like what? Do, like I don't know. That's a good question. Are they just bossy in the water? I don't know. Did he? I now that I'd like to read. Like, did he go into detail of the life of the seals on Jupiter? I did find out that his book is available as a digital download on Google, but I did not read it all because it was <laughs> several hundred pages, and I was busy cleaning my house. <laughs> the fact okay. that I could have read part of it yesterday is entirely beside the point. <laughs> I guess we'll never know. I guess we'll <laughs> unless we read it. Okay. Well, that that's the moment. Still love you, Andrew Jackson Davis, but I I can't get behind the seals. I'm sorry, I draw the line there. I can't do it. <laughs> I just can't do that part. Well, if it helps, we can circle back to the religious aspect of it again. Let's do that. Let's. Maybe he just had a moment. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe maybe he just like fell asleep and dreamed it and was like, "Oh, oops." He was he was in a hotel near the harbor. He heard the barking seals. It sounded tyrannical, and he had visions of Jupiter. Who knows? He was just sleep talking. Okay. Okay. Last thing, because I know we have to move on. But can you imagine? The men that are dictating this, like everything else has been, you know, pretty straightforward. Okay, we get it. The soul, we're there with you. And then he starts talking about seals. <laughs> Did they have a moment when they were just kind of looked at each other and like, what the hell? Like, what is going I on? I mean, probably. Like, did we did we hear what we, you heard, I heard seals. Did you hear seals? <laughs> <laughs> they just kept going. Like, yeah, like, oh. they took it down like champs. I, I'm going to go with our theory. He was talking in his sleep. <laughs> he was next to a he, his hotel was too close to the to the coast. It was fine. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. We need to continue. 
So I don't know if this is better or worse, but eventually the spirits had some stuff to say about Jesus as well. Okay, I can I can get that. Yeah, and uh, apparently unlike other seers or prophets who tried to ascertain who Jesus was as a person through the Gospels, David didn't use the Bible to give a biography via the eyewitnesses and the almost eyewitnesses of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Instead, his spirits questioned the traditionally accepted authorship of the Gospels. They focused on the dissimilarities between the Gospels and aimed to reveal the real Jesus beneath the biblical distortions. Which... If it's if it's Swedenborg contacting him in a trance, that would make a lot of sense because Swedenborg went through the Bible verse by verse. Exactly. Ah, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> and some of the things they'd say were things like Matthew was certainly not capable of being an eyewitness to those miraculous works that he speaks about because he was an officer under the Roman government for many years after the death of Jesus and did not become an apostle until he was greatly advanced in life. Oh, Okay. Davis said that the constant modifications occurred through the retelling of the stories and firsthand accounts could become unjust statements from which the truth had to be ferreted out. Apparently, Jesus was still born in Israel, and as in Matthew's gospel, he and his parents had fled to Egypt for a time, but Jesus possessed an intuitive knowledge of the medicine properties of plants, minerals, and animal substances. Uh, He also behaved like a mesmerist, deploying great physical soothing power over the disordered or disconcerted forces of human systems. And Jesus was no apocalyptic prophet. He was more like, and the description here I had to pull directly, well, an antebellum American social reformer working towards the spirit of reform in all things and aiming for a general harmony of interests and action throughout his material sphere. Now, this description had to come way later than the 1840s, given that the antebellum South was not a thing in the 1840s. That's a that's a post-description, not a current description. I was about to say, as soon as you said antebellum, I was like, what? <laughs> like, I mean, if this had happened in the 1870s, sure. But what? like, for, for, so for those of you who aren't just, uh, if you don't live in the South and you don't have to hear about it all the time, uh, <laughs> the antebellum South is the pre-Civil War South. And yes. since this is 20 years before the Civil War, they don't know it's the pre to be. Um, yeah. Like, unless you've watched History of the World Part 1 from Mel Brooks too many times, like I have, where, you know, <laughs> what are we counting down to? Nobody knows. Because they're, you know, pre-zero, year zero CE. Yeah. So it's not antebellum until you have something to be before. Um, right. Yeah, that, that is, yeah, that kind of throws me off. I'm, I don't. That's kind of weird. I have to to assume that was a description that was added later or like he he realized in hindsight that there was a better way of describing it. And so he subbed it out. Yeah, I would I would think so, too. And while this Jesus was in many ways rather mundane, his life was still being told via spiritual revelation. Davis would sometimes skip entire parts of Jesus's life because the spirits presented him with no such occurrence. But then the same spirits would also be pretty precise when they wanted, like when they told Davis that the baby Jesus used the manger for no more than 40 minutes. (laughs) Okay. I mean... That seems very short. And a weird... That seems like a very weird detail. Like, he only laid there 40 minutes. Like... (sighs) I mean, before he needed to be changed, maybe? I I mean, I've had a child. They, They tend to sleep and lay... Longer than 40 minutes. I, I mean, 
unless they moved on, unless the mother was holding Jesus, Mary was holding. But it just seems like out of all the things, that's just a really odd detail. Like he only laid there for 40 minutes. Right. Like we're going to skip entire sections of his life. But this particular instance is going to need a lot of detail. And we're going to give you not, not even just something vague, like less than an hour. It was literally 40 minutes is how long he was in the manger. Yeah. That's interesting. I think I would have rather known a lot more about Jesus's life than that fact. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like right. I would have liked it. Okay. Okay. That doesn't really help us at all as no. uh, believers, but thanks for sharing, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Now, keep in mind that these dictations were being done during lectures, public ones. So there were quite a few witnesses to the delivery of this dictation. How they handled the seals, I don't know. <laughs> you just read my mind. <laughs> you literally just read my mind. I was like, oh, to be on a fly on the wall during the seals. Shoot, you don't have to be a fly on the wall. Just be an audience member there while he's doing it. <laughs> What oddball thing do you wish you could do if you had a time machine? I would go back to one of Davis's lectures and listen to him talk about the seals and see how everyone reacted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That one seems innocuous enough that you would get approval to go back in time. I think so, too. And it just seems so different than anything else he put out there. It just just seems very odd. I mean, Swedenborg was... Fixated on the celestial bodies, they have, I mean, people are fascinated by space. It's been that way through history. That's true. That's true. That could make a really good children's book to teach about bullying the poor little penguin and the tyrant seal. Like, ooh, children's book idea. Absolutely. Okay, sorry. That's all right. That's that's when you know you have a four-year-old. I'm like, ooh, we could write a book about that. We totally could. <laughs> so one <laughs> of the people... Our idea. <laughs> yes, don't steal it. That's ours. One of the people in the audience was a Dr. George Bush, a professor of Hebrew at the University of New York, and he declared that he heard Davis correctly quote Hebrew. He also answered impromptu questions put to him while he was in the clairvoyant state. Uh, Dr. Bush is quoted as saying... Taken as a whole, the work is a profound and elaborate discussion of the philosophy of the universe, and for the grandeur of conception, soundness of principle, clearness of illustration, order of arrangement, and an encyclopedic range of subjects, I know no work of any single mind that will bear fr- bear away from it at the palm. And Dr. Bush did point out the coincidence of publications, because the revelations were oddly similar to Emanuel Swedenborg's. The language is in several cases all but absolutely verbatim. And there was a striking similarity to another one of Swedenborg's books, The Economy of the Animal Kingdom. And a few English copies had just reached the U.S. That being said, Bush actually used this as a point to an argument for Davis's supernatural powers because it was doubtful that the book could have reached him in time for it to be used in this way. That's really amazing and a good point that if he wouldn't have had access to it, to quote it verbatim. Also, I mean, even let's let's... Let's just say, what if he was, which I don't think he was, I'll put that disclaimer out, but let's just say he was, he was making this all up or he had read the book to quote it verbatim and to memorize all that. I don't even know how you would do that. I I lean towards it was trance. Yeah. Especially the verbatim part. Yeah. Yeah. And it was actually partly due to Dr. Bush's enthusiasm about this work that the book published in 1847 was so popular. However, within a couple of weeks of it coming out, Bush published a pamphlet, Davis's Revelations Revealed, and he warned the public against being misled by the numerous errors, absurdities, and falsities contained within Davis's work. 
It was clear to him that he said that Davis, although apparently honest and single-hearted as a young man, he'd been made the mouthpiece of uninstructive and deceiving spirits. This rapid change of opinion was later explained by author Frank Podmore in his book Modern Spiritualism that came out in 1902, by the way. I need to read that book. He explained it as basically it came from the seer's attitude toward Christianity in a section of the book on divine revelations, which Bush probably didn't read in advance. And it contradicted Davis's views as expressed in his lectures on Claire meditativeness. So basically, Bush really loved Davis's work on this part, but these other chapters that he didn't get a look at before his accolades went everywhere, the other section he did not care for as much. And so like kind of caveat, keep a heads up, don't believe everything in the book. Gotcha. The publication of The Principles of Nature made Davis famous, and he was soon surrounded by a group of enthusiastic supporters. On December 4th, 1847, the first issue of Univerculum was issued with Universal Minister S.B. Britton as the editor-in-chief and with Davis as their mouthpiece and star. Uh, The object of the publication was the establishment of a universal system of truth and reform and the reorganization of society. Davis contributed many articles that were later incorporated into his later book, The Great Harmonia. And this is kind of where you start seeing the coming of spiritualism as we understand it in this time period. In the Univerculum, a New York City weekly, Davis wrote, It is a truth that spirits commune with one another while one is in the body and the other in the higher spheres. And this too, when the person in the body is unconscious of the influx and hence cannot be convinced of the fact, the truth will ere long present itself in the form of living demonstration and the world will hail with delight the ushering of of that era when the interiors of men will be opened and the spiritual communion will be established. And unlike the ghostly hauntings most people associated with ghosts, this contact would be benevolent. And this movement would supposedly cause people to no longer fear death, since when the spirit left the body, they'd look the same as they did in life, and human spirits would become enlightened by light and love of heaven and ascend to higher levels of spiritual society, where the soul would continue to evolve, passing through concentric circles of spheres until it reached the highest level that he described as the infinite vortex of love and wisdom and the great spiritual sun of the divine. No, wow, it's beautiful. And just with my mentor who who comes from that from the spiritualist church in that world, that's what we're taught still today. And that so I, I just think it's beautiful. And I it, it would take the fear away. It does take the fear away from death. So I I love that. Uh, Later, in his notes from March 31st, 1848, he wrote, About daylight this morning, a warm breathing passed over my face, and I heard a voice, tender and strong, saying, Brother, the good work has begun. Behold, a living demonstration is born. I was left wondering what could be meant by such a message. I don't know, Jess, what happened on March 31st, 1848? (laughs) Well, uh, no, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) I'm not going to let it out. This is the longest teaser ever. I know. You may have to listen to the next episode. Or, you know, Google the date and uh, include the state (laughs) New York, and that'll give you a whole heap of sources to tell about it. Something very spooky, but also very exciting happens. Yeah, super awesome. At this point, spiritualism exploded, especially after the Civil War, it got really popular, with mediums developing new skills like automatic writing, trance speaking, like Davis did himself, and slate writing. But by the 1880s, we start seeing the gimmicky and showy mediums doing more theatrics to impress their audiences. Those 
he and many other more established mediums distanced themselves from. Uh, he stressed the importance of trans mediumship and even avoided alcohol as he believed that purity of mind and mood were key to achieving higher states of consciousness. Uh, his teachings left quite an impression in his time. The Great Harmonia had 40 editions. His autobiography, The Magic Staff, extended only to the year 1857, but it was later supplemented with a sequel called Beyond the Valley that came out in 1885. In 1860, he started The Herald of Progress, a weekly publication that absorbed the Spiritual Telegraph, another publication that was happening around the time. In the later years of his life, he had a small bookshop in Boston. He sold books and, having earned a degree in natural medicine, prescribed herbal remedies for his patients. Wow. Davis died on January 13th, 1910, and he was noted as an important influence in the early development of spiritualism, particularly in his association of mediumistic revelations with religious principles. His concepts on the afterdeath spheres for departed spirits, which he named Summerland, are still part of the beliefs of many modern spiritualists. I know you've heard Summerland. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. He influenced the more subsequent spiritualist movements, including those of Thomas Lake Harris, and it even seems possible that Edgar Allan Poe's Eureka owes its inception to Davis's principle of nature. Wow. No. So he was quite the influential person. He really was. I mean, he really was. And I think sometimes he gets overlooked a little bit by some of those that came after him. I get a little bit, bit more of the attention, but still in the spiritualist teachings and any history you read, I mean, it all goes back to Andrew Jackson Davis, completely influential. And so much of his teachings and beliefs are still followed to this day. So, I mean, it's just, it's it, as you're reading that, I'm like, oh my gosh, my mentor was just talking about this in class the other day. I mean, it's still, I mean, it just shows how much of a presence he still has within this world, which is amazing. Absolutely. I have to wonder how much they mention him at the Swedenborg Institute, though. <gasps> oh, because he's that Swedenborg so important and popular in the U.S. I have to wonder if he's mentioned a lot. And, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't look into that. Obviously, I looked at how it played into spiritualism. That's a very good, very good question, especially since Swedenborg was so against other people doing this work. But if he came to Andrew Jackson Davis, but then that encouraged this movement for other people. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I, I don't know, but you better believe I'm about to do a deep dive and <laughs> look into that. Because you would think they would give him some credit. I mean, especially in America, it spread his his teachings and ideas. But I don't know. Yeah, great, very, very interesting. No, I think a lot of I think a lot of him. And I know we tease I teased about the seals, but I, I do think a lot a lot of him, and give him a lot of credit. No, I mean you can't help but give him a lot of credit for the movement. <laughs> like he's. He's a big, like, I, I described him as the one who kickstarted all of it. Like, yeah. he was more or less the catalyst. Like, the, we already had everything primed with the Burned Over District and the Second Great mm -hmm. Awakening. And as far as taking that fervor and incorporating conversations with the deceased, he, yeah. he he's that linchpin. Without him there, I mean, somebody else could have potentially done it. But, like, there's no... 
it doesn't matter where you start the U.S. movements or the modern spiritualism movement, wherever you start your history, whether you started with the more popular people or if you start at the beginning, you start at the end and mm-hmm. work your way backwards, you can't get through it without mentioning Davis at some point. Absolutely. Absolutely. You said it beautifully. He was the linchpin. Yup. Well, I I really enjoyed this today. I really enjoyed setting the scene and um, learning more about him and um, looking forward to what did he predict would happen? Ooh. What? <laughs> so if you want to find out, you've got to listen. Yes. It's almost like we want you to keep coming back or something. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have enjoyed this, and this is Jessica. And this is Caitlin. And this was Calling All Spirits. Bye.